D, this one is for you. MUAs that revolutionized the beauty industry. Let's go. Give me that microphone. Hello, welcome to the Makeup Artist Chronicle. I am your host, Julia, and I'm so very happy that you're here. A fellow makeup artist and friend recommended looking into some of the makeup artists that really revolutionized the beauty industry, and I thought, what a great idea. I love any opportunity to do a little research, to look into some history, and to get to know my industry a little better, and to see who may have paved the way for me and other makeup artists to be able to do what we do and love what we do. So let's jump into it. Makeup artistry really became a thing when movies became a thing in the early 1900s in America. So I'm going to keep this to America, maybe a little bit the UK, but that's kind of where my research brought me. So I'm going to talk about the history of makeup artistry in Hollywood first, and then go into more contemporary trailblazers in the industry. Think Bobby Brown, Dame Pat McGrath, to name a few, and then talk about kind of the most recent revolutionary changes in the beauty industry, in the makeup artist career, and talk a little bit more about that, maybe foreshadow for the future, where we may be going, who knows, but that's going to be the overview of the episode. Now, I have notes that I am referencing, and there are quite a few of them. I think I have enough for an episode. I may have too many, and we might have to go into a two-parter for this one. I'm not entirely sure yet, because once I started digging into these amazing people and the roads and the paths that they have paved for us and for others to love makeup and to really work in this industry, or even if you are in this industry as a consumer or just a lover of beauty, we wouldn't be able to have the amazing products that we have or the amazing awareness for makeup and makeup artists that we have right now if it wasn't for these things and these people. So you know what? Let's just jump in to the facts and the people. Really, really quick addendum, um, or not addendum, but like a little note. This isn't completely comprehensive. I would love to continue to do episodes on this as I learn more about people or more about the industry. But as of right now, this is what my research yielded. And I want to share that with you. So let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you have people that you're like, oh, you didn't talk about this person and they are totally revolutionary. Let me know. DM me at MUA Chronicle because I want this to be as comprehensive as possible. So let's go ahead and jump in. The two biggies in the game at the time, so movies, early 1900s, Hollywood, two biggies at the time were Oh, I'm going to butcher so many people's names. Maximilian Faktorowitz, aka Max Factor, and George Westmore. So let's talk about Maxi Boy first, Max Factor. So he started apprenticing for wig makers and cosmeticians in Poland and in Russia from the age of nine. Nine. He was basically like, hey, give me a job. Let me figure this out. Let me learn this. Although I feel like apprenticeships have always been when you're a kid, especially back in those days, like the late 1800s and even earlier, 
you would show up as a kid and you would just apprentice for years and years and years. And there's still that kind of culture of it. Not so much as a kid now because child labor laws, but still there are some industries like hat making, for instance. I wanted to learn how to make my own hats. And I realized that it's a very like almost closed off type of industry where you really have to know someone, you have to have a passion, you have to apprentice before you can kind of go off on your own and make your own hats. And there aren't a lot of resources on how someone at home during a pandemic could take up a new hobby of hat making. Uh, If you know, let me know. But apprenticeships were kind of the old school way to always do it. And so that's what Max did. Eventually, he opened his own beauty shop in Russia And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to America, which relatable for me personally, very relatable. So at um, the age of 32 in the year 1904, he came to America. He came to America in February. And then that summer, he started selling his own products at the World's Fair. Now, it wasn't the max factor that the world would come to know, but it was a lot of like face creams and skincare and hair products. He actually wouldn't get into color cosmetics until he started working in Hollywood. So in 1908, at the age of 36, he moved to LA. I like to say the ages because I feel like so many people, when you think of I want to be a makeup artist, or I want to be a screenwriter, or a filmmaker, or an actor, or anything in the arts, or anything at all, actually. A lot of us think, you know, by the time we hit our 30s, or our 40s, or our 50s, or whatever age, oh, it's too late for me to learn something new, or it's too late for me to make a career change. And that is just not the case. You can truly pick up a new hobby or make a career change or follow a passion at any age. As long as you are alive, you have a pulse and a passion, you can do it. So at the age of 36, this man moves to LA and that's when his empire really starts to form. So eventually he becomes the West Coast distributor of Leichner and Miner. These are two manufacturers specifically for theater makeup. So if you've ever worked in the theater, I mean, theater makeup has come a long way since the early 1900s, but back then they had grease paint. I think it might still exist. So grease paint, essentially, when you're in the theater, when you're on stage, you need to be seen. Same thing, I think, with um, dancers. I used to dance ballet and we would put on an egregious amount of makeup because when you have the bright lights on you from the stage, you can look really washed out. And if you're acting in the theater, then your facial expressions will matter. And so they needed really thick makeup that would last even under the heat of the lamps, even from being washed out of color. And they needed something that was like very bold and theatrical, almost almost like clown makeup. So he got into distributing for theater makeup for these two manufacturers. And then he noticed that this makeup is very greasy. It's very thick. It's very bold. The colors, like, it wouldn't work for film. And that was his goal. He wanted to work in the movies. And he wanted to make products specifically for Hollywood. So he had these grease paints from these two manufacturers that he was selling in his, you know, distribution shop or whatever. And he started playing around with them. And he started kind of working with the formulation to create his own. 
1914, just, well, what is that, like six years or so, after he moved to LA, he started making his own grease paint. I call it grease paint light, L-I-T-E. But ultimately, it was very similar to having the long wear and the coverage of a grease paint without being cakey, without creasing, without being that thick. And he introduced it in 12 shades that were a little more subtle. So the color variety, the subtleness, the more thin application of it made it perfect for film. And so then he's like, all right, here I am. In the 1920s, he was like, let's make it available to everyone. Let's make all of our products, our cosmetic products, available to everyone. And let's market it in a way that makes every girl feel like being a movie star is accessible, right? Which, honestly, genius marketing. Horrible for comparison syndrome, but genius marketing, right? He's like, I work in the movies. I make makeup for the movies. With my products, you can also be, you know, like the the, the stars on the silver screen. Which, when you think about how many of us scroll through social media these days and look at all of these famous people or models or influencers and just feel horrible about our lives and feel like, I will never look this way and I will continue to buy all these products to fill this hole in my heart not to get dark, but it's real. And I, it happens to me very often. I actually took a break from social media this past weekend and I just worked in my garden and I took out weeds and I planted new things. And it was just very, very nice to get back to myself and not get stuck in like the, let me scroll, let me scroll, let me scroll. So it's hard. And I feel like maybe Max Factor, I'm not saying that it's his fault that we are where we are right now with comparison syndrome. All I'm saying is he was like the first makeup brand to really go out there and be like, hey, you too can look like the stars of the silver screen. Here you go. You want to look like Clara Bow? Here you go. So kind of cool, kind of genius from a business perspective kind of revolutionized cosmetics as a retail endeavor. And actually, if you think about it, or not if you think about it, but something I learned is in 1920, he actually changed the name from cosmetics to makeup. So it wasn't Max Factor Cosmetics that he launched. It was Max Factor Makeup. And up to that point, which I didn't know, I found this out and I thought it was kind of cool. Up to that point, Cosmetics was used to refer to color products that were for women, elegant women, women that went out to lovely dinner clubs and and were refined and, and proper and elegant. And makeup was used to describe people who were either in the theater or of a, quote, dubious reputation, aka sex workers. So Max Factor was basically like, nope, we're going to make this like very available, very accessible, very universal. And up to that point, his reputation had become one of he is the person to go to that all the stars go to for cosmetics or makeup, as he was now calling it. So think of like Patrick Ta. He was the Patrick Ta of the 
early 1900s. So he had all these celebrity clients and movie star clients, and he basically was like, let me make a brand that's available to help any woman feel comfortable about herself, and let me make it available to women. Like, let me not make it elitist. Let me make it available to women of every demographic and every price point, which was kind of cool. And the Max Factor brand would go on to create a lot of makeup firsts. They actually have something on their website as a whole page devoted to their 10 iconic firsts, which is what they call them. And some of these makeup firsts include a mascara wand, like a tube of mascara with a wand applicator. Because up to that point, what you would get for mascara was you would get this, it almost looked like a a mini Altoids tin, and you would open it and there was literally just, it looked like eyeshadow, black eyeshadow, but it was mascara and you would literally just spit in this little tin on the shadow And it had this little brush that came in the tin and you would zhuzh around your saliva with the powder and it would create a mascara and then you would put that on your lashes. Like that was legit how mascara worked up to that point. So Max Factor is like, oh, we created the first mascara one. However, Rimmel became kind of synonymous for mascara and became like known for their mascara around that same time. So I don't know. Max Factor is saying it was them first. Rommel is saying they revolutionized mascara. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I can't choose sides. But anyway, Max Factor on their website, mascara wand, mascara tube. Concealer sticks, that's something else that they claim to have been the iconic first and long wear lipstick. So there are a few other, obviously, makeup firsts that they say are iconic to the Max Factor brand. And I'm going to link that website in the show notes of this episode or the description of this episode. I never know what it's called, but it'll be there so you can go check it out and see where you land on all of that. Max Factor is actually still sold. It's still very well-loved and very popular all over Europe, Australia, and South America. So we don't really get it here in America, in the U.S., but you can buy it online. I think they ship it to the U.S., but it's not something that you'll go into like a CVS or Target or a Sephora and Max Factor will be there. But I do believe it's sold at like Boots in the UK. I think it is like a drugstore type of accessible price point around the world. But yeah, just not in the US. You got to buy online, which I feel like if you're going to buy products online, they're probably not going to be Max Factor. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Let me know. So that's Max Factor in a nutshell. Now his his story obviously goes deeper. His wiki page is ridiculously long, but those were kind of the big things that I thought stood out in terms of how they revolutionized the industry. But let's talk about now the other man who I mentioned earlier, George Westmore. Now Georgie Boy has a Lifetime Achievement Award named after him at the Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. So the Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild is a U.S. guild. It is, I believe, known as the 706. 
A lot of people belong to it or would like to belong to it. It's basically a union for makeup artists and hairstylists. And the award, the Lifetime Achievement Award, was created in 2000, the year 2000. And actually the first person to win the award was George's grandson, whose name is Monty. And Monty actually was Joan Crawford's personal makeup artist. Like, what? Obviously. Okay. Hello. Fun fact about George also, Fertile George. George had six sons and all six of his sons were makeup artists. So Monty is his grandson, but he had six sons. They were all makeup artists and they were makeup artists during the Gilded Age of Hollywood in Hollywood. George also had 20 children in total. So he was busy. He was busy revolutionizing the makeup industry and then also just having kids, fertilizing women. Anyway, let me, here's the other thing before I move on, because I know this took a turn, but I feel like that's what my episodes do. There are tangents and there's always a peppering of chaos. So I believe my research showed that George, 19 of those 20 children were by one woman. He had them with one woman. Could you imagine having 19 children? I mean, maybe that's your dream. That's kind of my nightmare. I would love 19 dogs. I would love, I would love to live on a farm with like 19 cows, just like very gentle, beautiful animals. But 19 children, that's a lot. That's a lot of children. And then he had one more kid when that wife, I believe she may have passed away and then he got remarried and they had another kid, which is just insane to me. But anyway, so George actually started out as a hairdresser. He was from the UK and there was a rumor. I don't know if it's been confirmed. I could not find confirmation. I All I could find was that it was a rumor. It was a whisper. But um, there was a rumor that he cut Winston Churchill's hair. Now, again, I don't know if it was a one-time thing. I don't know if it was a lie. I don't have the facts. I wasn't there. If I could have a time machine and go back and be a fly on the wall and figure it out, I feel like there are other places I would go first (laughs) to be a fly on the wall. But um, perhaps I would eventually swoop on in and check in on George and be like, hey, did you cut Winnie's hair? Which is, I mean, that's kind of cool. That's kind of a cool claim to fame, if it's true. But he went on to do like a lot of other really great things, which I'm about to tell you. So let's keep it moving. So Georgie boy moved to LA and of course, and started working in the movies. And he actually went there to work in his whole thing was, I want to be a hairdresser and I want to, he was a wig maker. So he wanted to make wigs for the actors for their performances. He did not even think about makeup. It wasn't a thought in his mind, but he got to Hollywood and he ended up on film sets and he was like, these actors are doing their own makeup and they suck at it. Like they are, they're good actors horrible makeup artists. And up to that point, there really weren't makeup artists in the industry. Like I talked about Max Factor, but he wasn't really a makeup artist in the industry. I mean, he was, but that was like, he dabbled. He dabbled. He he was more of a provider of the cosmetics. He was not an applicator of the cosmetics or the makeup, as he called it. So anyway, in 1917, which is around the same time that Max Factor started kind of tinkering with his formulations, 
1917, Georgie Westmore, his name is George. I liked Maxie Georgie. I just like to, you know, cute them up a little bit. So George set up the first ever makeup movie or movie makeup department. There it is. I'm not going to try to say that five times fast. First ever movie makeup department at the Selig Polyscope Company. So this is a production house, and he set up the very first makeup department for movies, which is huge, right? Because if you think about it, before there was a makeup department, before there was a hierarchy when it comes to like there was a head makeup artist and a this and a that, before there were makeup and hair trailers, before there was a guild, before any of that, there was a guy that said... Actors should not be doing their own makeup. Makeup artists should be doing makeup for film. And there should be a designated department and space for them to be a part of and to be paid to do this job, which is amazing. I'm so happy he did that because I know a lot of you listeners are either currently working in the TV and film space or you aspire to. Some of you are even working on some Hollywood movies or some, you know, big studio movies. And it wouldn't exist if George hadn't been like, there needs to be a department for this. So that's it. Like, that's his big claim to fame. He kind of started working as a makeup artist accidentally but his career or his goal was to be a wig maker. And instead he was like, okay, makeup, like this is what we're going to do. And we're going to bring in people and we're going to create a department. So I don't know if you can technically call him a makeup artist. I may have just snuck him in here as a revolutionary in the beauty space or in the makeup for film space. But he is basically the person that validated a need for makeup artists to exist in the films. So there you go. There's George. Also, weird side fact, um, not to get a little morbid, but you know, that's just how I roll. I love to talk about beauty with like a dash of um, death. So (laughs) George poisoned himself with mercury and it took him four days to die. I mean, that's obviously sad and horrible. And I don't, I don't necessarily know why I couldn't find out like what led to that. Was it a mental health thing? Was it a fact that like he had 20 kids and he just couldn't, I don't know. I don't know why, um, but he did. And it's just very sad and also a little terrifying. Like why, I don't know. Did he not know that mercury would take, would not be instantaneous? Like he suffered for four days. So anyway, that's just like a very weird non-beauty related fact that um, I thought you should know. Also, there are some beauty products from back in that day that contained mercury, I think, or maybe they didn't. Definitely belladonna used to be a thing, but that was, I think, 1800s or even 1700s where like belladonna was just toxic. Women would put them in, put drops of it in their eyes in order to kind of dilate their eyes and it sent the subliminal messaging of like, I'm very into you because my eyes are dilated. So yeah, no, there have always been toxic ingredients in beauty. So I don't know if he was exposed in that way or, I mean, my research says he poisoned himself. So it sounds like he was very much like aware, but, uh, yeah, he uh, he was basically like, I'm going to revolutionize this space. I'm going to create amazing wigs. And then I'm just going to, like, go. 
Okay, I think I gotta like really, really pivot and and swap this around and give you a hopeful, lovely, delightful story. Let's talk about the let's talk about some ladies, okay? Some some women, female power, very into this. Cause I was like, oh, all of these are dudes and dudes and dudes. And where are the women? And and anyway, so very first woman, first female makeup artist in Hollywood, Dorothy. Ponadel. She was known as Dottie, which is adorable. She moved to LA in 1920 to actually star in movies. So she was there around the same time as George Westmore and Max Factor. And um, that is actually the same year that Max started calling or started his retail cosmetics empire and started calling it makeup instead of cosmetics. So 1920, Dottie lands in LA. She's like, I want to be in the movies, which fun fact, I don't know if you knew this, little tangent time, little fun fact, tangent time, but movies were literally like the reason we call them movies is because people would call them moving pictures when they first came out and that got shortened to movies. So literally that's why we call them movies and film because it was shot on film. But yeah. And then talkies because they started talking. But before that, theater was the big thing. And then photography came out and then moving pictures because anyone that knows movies are literally just pictures that are shown in very, very rapid succession. So it's like a flip book, but on film. So anyway, that's why movies are called movies. So Dottie wanted to be in the movies and she got to LA. She was actually cast. First, she was cast as an extra and then she started as, and she moved on to being a dancer in some musicals. And then she was playing the best friend role or the sidekick kind of role. So she actually did pretty well. Well, as an actress, she wasn't, you know, a, a starlet or like a, a lead, but she got booked and she got gigs, which a lot of my actor friends will tell you, you know, good for her for being a working actor. You know, there are so many people that I know that are, you know, still, you know, working hard trying to get their their break in even a small role. So sending positive vibes out to you, friends, if you're actors and you're trying to trying to do the thing, I see you keep going. So in 1930, she became, Dottie became a makeup artist on a film. The film is called Follow Through. It's actually kind of adorable if you're into older movies. It's a Technicolor musical rom-com. And the whole premise is like this golfer, like loses her instructor for some reason and like gets a new instructor and like falls in love with him. So it's like, kind of adorable. Um, I only watched a few clips. I haven't watched the whole thing through, but I plan to after I finish this recording. Anyway, Dottie. Let's talk about Dottie. So Dottie is a makeup artist on this film Follow Through. I couldn't find out how she actually, I don't know if like she just started doing makeup or if she, I don't know where her love of makeup or her work of makeup or any of it came out, but she essentially started to do makeup, started with this film. And as so many of us, she kind of stumbled into her career as a makeup artist. I stumbled into it because I wanted a pro discount at Mac. And then I was like, oh my God, I love this. This is so creative and personal and delightful. So a lot of us, I feel like stumble into it. But anyway, so Dottie kind of blew up as a makeup artist. She started working on all of these films and she actually became the very first woman 
to be admitted into the makeup union. So that's huge. But also the union didn't want her. Of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. Um, It was actually after her clients and friends, Marlene Dietrich, you may have heard of her, and Mae West, who love her, badass. If you love women who are unapologetically themselves and are just sharp and funny and own who they are and don't make themselves small for other people, Mae West. I mean, Marlene too, but like Mae West was spicy and I appreciate that about her. Yeah. So Mae West and Marlene Dietrich basically were like, you need to let her into the union. What are you doing? Like, she's amazing. She's worked with all of us. And they were right. She not only worked with those two, she worked with pretty much every single starlet at the time. And she worked at studios like Paramount and MGM. So she was a big deal. And she had to have two huge celebrities and and stars basically vouch for her and be like, oh yeah, no, 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 let her in the union. But she got in there, became the first woman to to do it. One of the more pivotal moments in her career came when she left Paramount to go to MGM because it was at MGM that she became the personal makeup artist and bestie to a certain young starlet who was just finding her break. You may have heard of her, Judy Garland, the Judy Garland. So apparently the studio, the studio, MGM was basically like, we got this girl and she's talented. She's got a great set of pipes on her, but um, she's not really pretty. What do you think you can do with her? Um, which I'm just imagining like a chubby man in a three-piece suit with like a, a, a watch, one of those like watch chains with a mustache and a comb over and a cigar just being like, make her profitable. I may be totally wrong, but that's what I'm imagining in my mind. So anyway, she, Dottie became the personal MUA and bestie to Judy Garland. And that kind of just was how she ended her career. She worked with Judy. Judy obviously blew up on multiple platforms, right? Not only as an actress, but also as a singer. Okay, don't hate me. I haven't seen the uh, Renee Zellweger, Judy Garland biopic. Biopic? Biopic? I don't know what it's how it's pronounced. I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. Don't hate me. Should I watch it? I know that Renee won an Oscar for her role, but I don't know. I don't know why I haven't watched it. It's, I don't know. Let me know. Anyway, let me know if I should watch it and also any other thoughts you have about this episode. I know there have been some bombshells or maybe you knew all of this already. I don't know. DM me at MUA Chronicle on Instagram. Let me know. Anyway, so Dottie kind of ended her career by being there for Judy the whole time. Um, After one of Judy's concerts in 1951, she was like, I am, this is my last tour with you. These are my last concerts with you. Dottie was actually diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, which is a degenerative disease where the body essentially just, I believe what happens is that the body starts to destroy its own neurons. Yeah. By basically like having an immune response against neurons and just being like, oh, these are invaders, these are invaders, and just destroying your own kind of uh, neurological nervous system. 
Um, if you're familiar with, I'm going to talk about influencers and, and makeup artists who became influencers in part two of the episode, because I'm looking at the clock and we are getting to about time of me rambling. So in part two next week, I'm going to talk about makeup artists who became influencers. But if you recall Pixie Woo, if you ever loved Pixie Woo, they were my gateway into makeup artistry and the love of makeup and thinking I could actually do this career. So it's two sisters, Nick Chapman and Sam Chapman. And Nick actually has MS and chronicles her journey with MS and her love of all things beauty and doing her makeup um, while she's kind of in recovery and getting treatment for this horrible disease. So I highly recommend you follow her on Instagram to check that out if you want. Her name is Nicola Chapman. Um, But yeah, Dottie, you know, got MS and she was like 1951 after Judy's show. She was like, okay, I'm sorry, I have to retire. But before she passed away, while she was at home, homebound with her MS, she actually blessed us, blessed the world with a memoir. It is called About Face, The Life and Times of Dottie Ponadel, Makeup Artist to the Stars. Now, it's a wordy title, I will give you that, but it's a very cool book. I haven't read it, but you can still buy it. It's like $20 on Amazon, so I will link it in the description of this episode, show notes, whatever they're called, and I will also be buying it and reading it as well because I think that's just so cool that she was like, let me reflect on my life and give you this memoir. And yeah, Dottie, badass, badass. So there you go. There's Dottie. That's her book. Again, I'll link it in the show notes, but let's start to wrap it up. I have one more makeup artist that I want to talk about that is based in Hollywood that got her start there. And that will wrap up our section on makeup artists in Hollywood that kind of revolutionized the beauty industry. And then part two will be next week where I will talk more about contemporary artists that revolutionize the beauty industry in other sectors. So fashion, lifestyle, things like that. But I would be remiss if I did not talk about Bernadine Anderson. (sighs) This woman, I, there is a YouTube interview with her where she talks about her story and the, like the video quality is not that great because I think it might be from the nineties. But the audio quality is fine. It's perfectly great. And she just kind of tells her own story in her own words. And it's her energy is just so it makes you want to sit in her chair and have her touch your face and put makeup on you because she just has this lovely, lovely energy. So I'll be sure to link that in the show notes as well, a link to that YouTube video. But Bernadine Anderson is so incredible. She is Hollywood's first Black makeup artist. She is the first Black woman to be accepted into the guild, into the union. And she's just incredible. She's absolutely incredible. She's still alive. And let's talk about her story. So Bernadine was originally from New York and she thought she wanted to be a costume designer. So she put herself through school to be a costume designer. And okay, we're gonna, (laughs) again, beauty with a dash of death. She made her tuition money in order to pay for her schooling as a costume designer by applying makeup to corpses. So she would apply makeup to dead people. And somewhere along the way, 
she found her passion with makeup and she decided to be a makeup artist. So it took her four years, four freaking years of knocking on doors and chasing down opportunities in the 60s just to get an apprenticeship. If you're out there and you're like, oh, I am working so hard and I am like, I'm every time I think this will be my big break and I'm working at it and I'm coming with energy and passion and I'm constantly educating myself on the craft and it's just not happening for me. I'm not getting my big break. Just know if you are passionate, there will be an opportunity for you. Just keep going. So Bernadine was like, I'm not letting all of these no's and all of these rejections and all of this racism stop me. So eventually she got a three-year apprenticeship at Warner Brothers to work on Planet of the Apes. Like not just a movie, but like the movies that were being made of that franchise at the time which is incredible. This was the late 60s. I believe it was 1968 when this happened. But essentially, it made her the first Black makeup artist in Hollywood. And then in 1973, so um, 1968, 1973, what is that? Five years? Five years later, she was the first Black makeup artist to be accepted into the Guild, into the Union, which is incredible. Even though She had this apprenticeship with Warner Brothers. She was working on a huge action franchise and she was accepted into the guild. That did not guarantee her any jobs in the future. And actually, there were other studios and other productions that were actively like telling her no. And the reason for that was racism. They did not want a black makeup artist on their set. And you know, even after all of this work and all of this, you know, success, they were like, nope, we're not going to hire you. So she filed a discrimination lawsuit and she actually won. And by winning that lawsuit, this was a pivotal moment in the entire industry of Hollywood where it essentially created more room and a pathway for black makeup artists. It essentially said, you cannot discriminate based on people's races of, you know, them working on your production. Um, now, I don't know if the, I haven't read the lawsuit. I don't know if it was makeup artist specific or like crew specific or like where that was, but it essentially created more opportunities and more space for um, Black people to go in and be hairstylists and be makeup artists on these sets. Now, I will say these opportunities, even in 2022, while they still exist, there really isn't that many of them in the industry. They're still very prevalent. I mean, I, I don't know if it's discrimination. They're still very much, uh, they're, they're not putting enough people of color in the trailers. And when you have, you know, especially when it comes to hair, when you have um, people who aren't trained or aren't familiar with different types of hair, especially hair, um, natural hair, it's not going to create a great experience. And there have been plenty of stars, you know, Viola Davis and others in the industry that have said, you know, I've had to do my own makeup before because I'll sit in the chair and, you know, this makeup artist truly does not know how to do my makeup. So that's changing a little bit, but honestly, not enough. In fact, little side side info. So 2021, aka last year, was the first year that black hairstylists won an Oscar. 
in the category of best hair and makeup design. That category has been around since 1981. So it took 40 years for black hairstylists to win the Oscar. It was um, Mia Neal and Jamika Wilson for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which film is so incredible and Viola is just a goddess and R.I.P. Chadwick Boseman you incredible incredible spirit but I don't think that was for hair I don't think a black makeup artist has won that category yet and I think I mean honestly a part of it may be because not a lot of people of color are staffed on these sets it has increased since Bernadine came on the set in the late 60s, early 70s, but it's still not that prevalent. And there's this whole other thing going on right now, which a lot of my friends in the industry for Hollywood and, you know, people, whether they're in Atlanta or in Hollywood, anyone working in the film industry are going through, you know, the inhumane conditions that makeup artists and hairstylists have to deal with which Bernadine even talks about. She's like, yeah, when I was working on the Planet of the Apes, like we would work 12 to 15 hour days and it was just straight up like prosthetics, makeup, like all of it nonstop. And that hasn't really changed. There are so many crew positions that are not getting safe working conditions on sets right now. And there was a strike. The The guild went on strike. The union went on strike. Um, and a lot of their members went on strike and terms were met but I don't know. I've talked to some friends in the industry and I wouldn't say that they're necessarily satisfied with the terms that were met. It's a a step forward, but it's not necessarily the best kind of agreement that could have been reached. And I'll leave it at that because again, I'm, I'm not in that specific sector of the beauty industry or the makeup artist um, space. So I'm learning a lot from them and I'm still in the process of learning. So um, I would highly recommend following Elena Miller, who I've interviewed on this podcast before. She's very vocal about that um, and she posts a lot about it on her Instagram and her Instagram stories. So go ahead and throw her a follow. I will link her um, handle in the description of this episode. I believe it's Elena J. Miller, but I'll confirm and I will leave the link in the description. So Bernadine, she essentially paved the way forward for more people of color to have access to jobs in the industry and specifically makeup artists and hairstylists. And she went on to be Eddie Murphy's personal makeup artist for many, many years. She was actually the department head for makeup on Coming to America as well as the recent Coming to America sequel. She came back and was the head makeup artist for that, which I think that came out, what, a year ago, two years ago? So she's still, you know, working, doing her thing, and she's fabulous. Also, she was Jane Fonda's personal makeup artist for many, many years, close to a decade. Jane had heard about her and specifically asked for Bernadine to work with her and do her makeup. And so they worked together for close to a decade, which is incredible. And I love that. I love that because sometimes that's what it takes to get these opportunities, much like we saw with Dottie, where Mae West and Marlene were vouching for her to get into the guild. Sometimes it just takes people with a little more power, a little bit of a bigger platform, definitely more privilege to say, hey, this person matters and I want this person here doing this work. So if you're in one of those positions 
and you, you find that you have a voice that carries weight and you can make those decisions, I highly, highly encourage you to be thoughtful about, um, the language you use and the decisions you make and who you vouch for, because it really, really matters. And it definitely has a ripple effect. So I, I encourage you to be thoughtful there. But like I said, Bernadine is still very much working and um, she is still being amazing. Of course, in 2021, so last year, she actually received the Guild's Vanguard Award. Now, I had to do a little research because I was like, what is the difference between the Vanguard Award and the Lifetime Achievement Award? Because she wasn't getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I found the differences. The Lifetime Achievement Award are things that people have done in their own career that basically deem them worthy of gaining this award. I don't know. Maybe you have to like win multiple Oscars or I don't know. I don't know what the the checklist is. If you listen to last week's episode, I was like, I don't know what it takes to be on the Academy or what the checklist is to pick the best movie or whatever. Same thing with the guilt. I don't know what it takes, what the checklist is to be like, you qualify for this award. But the Vanguard Award essentially is given to people who have not only had incredible work and achievements in their own career, but they have also paved the way for other makeup artists to succeed in the industry, which Bernadine has definitely done. She was the first to to really create a pathway into the makeup and hair space for Black artists. I mean, specifically makeup, but hell yeah, Bernadine. And like I said, I will post the YouTube video of um, her interview because she has such a great energy. And I don't know, it's like a 10 minute video. I recommend you watch it. Like I said, the quality of it visually is not great, but the audio quality is good enough. You'll be able to hear it clearly and you'll be able to see her and get a vibe off of her. She also is like insanely in shape. Like I was looking at her arms and then I was looking at my own little flabby little bat wings. And I was like, girl, drop the routine because those biceps and triceps are incredible. But she just has this amazing energy. So I will link that YouTube video as well as all of the other things that I have mentioned that I will link. I promise I will do it in the description of the episode, the show notes, whatever the heck they're called. But that has been makeup artistry in Hollywood and how a few trailblazing makeup artists have really revolutionized the industry in Hollywood, but also the space of the beauty industry in general, that that part of the beauty industry that lives in Hollywood, which I know a lot of you are either, again, like I said, either working there right now or aspiring to. So that has been part one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned a little. Maybe if you have a little more to teach me, again, DM me at MUA Chronicle on Instagram. Again, part one, I didn't know this is going to be a multi-parter, but you know, when I get on the mic, I just, so I'm happy I had this chance to learn about these people, to share them with you. And I will be back next week here at the Makeup Artist Chronicle to talk about contemporary makeup artists that have revolutionized the industry. So some such artists include um, Bobby Brown, Dame Pat McGrath, also some influencers. We're going to get into how the beauty industry has been changed and the accessibility of beauty from makeup artists as well as everyone else and the rise of makeup artists as celebrities 
when we talk about Instagram, social media, TikTok, reality TV, all that stuff. So that is it for part one. Please tune in for part two next week. Follow me on Instagram at MUA Chronicle. DM me your thoughts, your feelings, your um, your own knowledge, because I'm always, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always trying to soak up knowledge. And remember, if you have been working hard and you're trying your best and you're not getting your break, keep at it because I believe in you. If you don't believe in you, tune into this part, save this part of the episode, like write it down, the timestamp, take like a screen, screen video grab, whatever it's called. I believe in you. You can do this. Perseverance, optimism, and passion. You will get there as long as you keep sight of those three things. I promise you, your craft will get better the more you work on it. People will gain exposure to your work the more you work on it. Your time, if it hasn't come already, it will come. I promise you just keep going because you are doing great and your time is truly coming and your life is going to unfold in the most beautiful way. So trust yourself and keep going. And sometimes when you need to take a break and just have a little bit of a mental breakdown and cry and wrap yourself in a blanket burrito and eat a pint of ice cream, fish food with a little sea salt. I'm telling you, it's a game changer. Do it. Take the time. Do the nothingness. Do the self-pleasure. And then keep going. You got this. Thank you for joining me here on the Makeup Artist Chronicle. I am your host, Julia. I'm happy we got to spend this time together, and I will talk to you next week here on the Makeup Artist Chronicle. Okay, bye. Give me that microphone.